based on Psalm 42, where we were last Sunday afternoon, as the heart panteth for the water brooks, so longeth my soul after thee. And uh, that was a great study. And, and in that study, we, we noted David's desire to be in the house of the Lord, that that desire was as strong as a desire for thirst. And, uh, and we saw that. Well, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. In Ecclesiastes, we're in the middle of chapter 4. We're going to finish off chapter 4 and move into chapter 5 today. But if you have your Bibles, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and starting in verse 9. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Now remember where we are. Solomon has been, he, he, has, he has been so far for most of the book looking at living life under the sun. No, no focus on the future, no focus eternally, no focus on God. <clears throat> Just what happens in life as I go through life without an eternal focus. And all throughout the book thus far, without that eternal focus, life comes up empty for him. There, there's, he feels like all the work of his hands, everything he does, it's all just empty. It's vain. It's worthless. And, and then straight and begins to think a little bit with an eternal focus. And, and then usually, unfortunately, goes right back to that focus without God. But that's where we're at as we get into chapter 4 and verse 9 today. Most of what we're going to look at is, is a period where Solomon's thinking is pretty good. He's got some eternal focus to it. He's got some, some thoughts there uh, that, that are, are positive and things that we can think about. And so that's what we find when we get into verse 9. The benefits, and the Roman number 1 today is the benefits of working together. Notice what it says in verse 9. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, we hear this passage read a lot at weddings. Because we talk about at a wedding, you have the husband and the wife, and the third cord of the of of the trio there is God, and and you know you 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 hear people when I do marriage counseling, I'll I'll talk about you know if you imagine a triangle and put you know the man down here in this corner and the woman down here in this corner and God up here at the peak of the triangle, and as you each grow closer to God, what's happening? You're growing closer to each other, and that's a really good analogy, and that's great, but it goes beyond just the marriage relationship, folks. It's true of all human relationships. Any relationship we have, somebody that's just a good friend, some camaraderie with a brother in Christ, the closer we grow to Jesus Christ, the closer we're going to grow to each other in our relationship on this earth. So it's not just a marriage picture, but, but it is that as well. But it's, it's more than that, and we have to understand that it's more than that. Now, Solomon has just talked about being alone in this under-the-sun world. That's where, that's where he'd been talking about Right before we get to verse 9, about being alone. Remember, he talks about, you know, making money, but you're alone. You don't have anywhere to spend the money, no use for it. And we talked about maybe having an eternal focus, using the money that you've earned if you're alone to, to, to better the, the work of Jesus Christ. And then he jumps right into this, this thinking that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And he states the reasons for this statement. And, and, and there's five reasons he gives about why two are better than one. The first one is they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, their sum is greater than their individual parts. Their sum is greater than their individual parts. And you know, folks, that is very true in the Christian life. 
as believers, we can come together, work together, and we can accomplish more together than we would just if we were individual parts that never worked with each other. That's why missions works. See, missions is our church partnering with somebody else for the greater good that both ministries in and of themselves maybe couldn't have attained. And, and so, you know, we send out a missionary. We're talking about missionaries as well. We send out a missionary to a foreign country, and, and he can do great in that foreign country, but he, he needs our funding from back here in the United States. Otherwise, he's going to be out of that foreign country pretty soon because he's not going to have enough money. And we have the command of God to go into the entire world and preach the gospel, but I just can't go run into a foreign country this next week. And so what happens is the two of us, through Jesus Christ, become greater than our two halves. And it's, and it's a greater thing. And that's what he talks about, good reward for the labor. Number two, the companion can lift the one who falls, helping one another in difficult times. Listen, folks, that's what the church ought to be doing. We ought to lift each other up in difficult... Why, why do we have fellowship? Why don't we just have church at our... We all just go home and have church at our own homes today. Well, you know, everybody goes and has their own church. It's the, the first church of Ken Biggs, uh, Spotsylvania. The first church, you know, why don't we do it that way? We don't do it that way because we need fellowship with each other. And the reason, part of the main part of that fellowship is to lift each other up. Why on every Sunday morning do I get up here and give prayer requests the very first thing as soon as we get started? So that we can lift each other up in prayer. Sometimes we lift each other up other ways. But, but, but certainly the idea is there that a companion, when somebody is there as your companion, they can lift you up and hold you up during difficult times. Now listen, I, I can tell you for certain our family has felt that in the last couple months because you guys have offered up literally probably thousands of prayers for our family during the difficult time. You've brought meals to our house during this difficult time. You've collected money to help out with bills during this difficult time. And, and, and you know what? That is so appreciated. And, and it's the idea that we should be doing always in the church. We should be lifting each other up. Helping somebody when somebody's having a difficult time. That's number two. Number three. Um, so that when the analogy of, of marriage, if two lie together, they, they, they have heat. And uh, listen, we all know wives are cold, right? They're always cold. Their skin is always cold. Their hands and feet are freezing. When we lie together, what happens? Our heat comes together. We have heat. In other words, we're there as to give comfort. Now, take it out of the marriage analogy. What are we supposed to be doing as believers in Christ? Giving comfort to those around us giving comfort to other brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes giving comfort to those that don't know Christ yet to help them in their chance of coming to the Lord as their Savior. And then number five, to give safety and security to each other. That's the final thing we see. Now, folks, that, that is a great list. And, and quite honestly, if we would just take all those things to heart, I could just pray right now and we could go home and we could be filled today. Because if we would put these things into practice in our life, it would revolutionize how we deal with brothers and sisters in Christ. It would totally change. Now listen, I think we get a lot of these things right. I really do. I, I, I compliment our church for that. I really think we get a lot of these things right. But folks, we can always do more. We can always do more. We can always be a, bro a better brother or sister in Christ to those around us than we're being now. And we should never be satisfied where we're at. We should always strive to be more Christ-like.
There is great value in the right kind of human relationship. That's why church is important. I don't know about you folks, but when we first moved into COVID the first time, and, 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 and I was t preaching from the foyer of my house and recording it and then putting it on the website so you could view it later, we missed something, and it was fellowship. I hated, hated preaching to an empty room. It was horrible, so horrible. I want to preach where there's people that are looking back at me. Even though I get nervous when I get up in front of people and talk, I, want, I, I love seeing your faces. And I can see people from time to time when I'm preaching that are nodding. I'm getting it. And I'm so thankful for that. I really prefer that to this. Because if you're doing this, I don't think you're getting it. But I'll see people who, who, who kind of nod their head or give me a look. And I'm like, I'm like, they understand what I'm saying. Which is good because I'm not super articulate. So if you're getting it, I'm thankful for that. But there is huge value in human relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we do church. That's why church is important. It's important, folks. And, 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 and when Solomon gets to this last statement in this past part of the passage where he says a threefold cord is not quickly broken, that's a, an important statement because you've got Solomon who all through the book has been looking at life without an eternal focus, not having God involved. And then he goes to a thought that people understood. Numbers in the Bible are important. The number three in Scripture signifies something that is substantial or complete. And so when Solomon says a threefold cord is not quickly broken, he's making a very big statement that everybody in his time would have understood that that third fold of the cord is God. And so Solomon, who has spent the entire book so far with an earthly mindset, earthly thinking, suddenly he says, listen, there is value in that third cord. Now, what does that tell us about God? Third, threefold cord is what? Not quickly broken. There is protection, provision, value in our, any relationship we have if God is part of that relationship. If God's part of that relationship. And that's an incredible statement from Solomon who doesn't normally think this way. And, uh, and so we must, we must understand that. In all of Solomon's faulty thinking in the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to some crucial truths from time to time. And this is one of those crucial truths. That they, we are stronger when we work together than when we work on our own. And there needs to be that kind of fellowship among believers, folks. That's what we need to have. That's why we have church. We have church to, to, to go out here and reach the world with the gospel. That's one aspect of church, but it's not the only aspect. The other aspect of church is to, is to edify the saints, to lift each other up, to build each other up, to help each other during difficult times. That's why church is important. That's why we have church, and that's why we come here. And so Solomon, in the middle of all this earthly thinking, has really struck a chord here that's very important. That every relationship we have is better if God is part of it. God is part of it. Every relationship. 
Doesn't matter what it is. If you and somebody else have any kind of a working relationship at all, it's better if God's part of that relationship because he forms the third chord in that three chord. It's important. It's essential to growth, growth the right way. We grow closer to God and we grow closer to each other no matter what the relationship is. And that's so important. Number two today, the vanity of fame. Solomon goes back to, to the, the vain thinking for a moment here. And here's what he says in verse 13. He says, um, better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of, the prison, out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They are also, uh, excuse me, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So what is Solomon talking about? He, he basically uses a proverb and he says this, it's better to be poor, wise, uh, and young than old, foolish, and have great wealth. That's basically, that, that's the summary of the, of, the, of the proverb. In other words, you're better to be poor and yet be wise than have great wealth and be a fool. That's what he's saying. And, and then he says, he, he thinks of one who, who, who comes from obscurity and poverty. That's the idea of the prison there. Somebody who comes out of the prison, somebody that comes from an obscure place and, and, and then begins to rule over a great number of people. And basically he says his fame is not going to continue into the future. And so he determines this also is vanity and grasping at the wind. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, folks, seeking fame is a vain thing. Seeking fame is a vain thing. You know, there's a lot of people today in this world that seek fame. I would say as never before because of social media. You literally have millions of people in this world that put every aspect of their life out there for others to see because they want to gain what? Another follower. Just another follower, just another follower, just another thousand followers, just another whatever. You know, and, and, and listen, there's good uses for social media too, don't get me wrong. But a lot of people wrap their life up these days in trying to be famous. They think there is going to be fulfillment in being famous. I mean, you see online people basically begging for you to, to like them, follow them, whatever. Why? Because they want to gain the followers because it makes them feel famous. But folks, you, you could have a half a million followers online and it's going to be empty because you don't know those people and they really don't know you. But we seek fame. Think, think of the Hollywood elites, all the fame that they get. And so many of them, folks, live what? Miserable lives. Despite the fame, despite the money, despite the exclusive living, they live miserable lives. Why? Because fame doesn't bring fulfillment. Listen, you can spend your entire life trying to make a name 
for yourself, that's not going to bring fulfillment in your life. Why? Because we've already learned in Ecclesiastes that fulfillment comes from a life involved with God. A life where the focus is on God. A life where the focus is eternal. So trying to build our entire life so that my name is known is vanity. And quite frankly, folks, a lot of it's a waste of time. <laughs> it really is. If I am so worried of that people know me, that I have to spend so much of my life trying to make sure they know me, I have wasted a lot of time in life. And so we must be careful because, like I said, in this day of social media, it, 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 just, it takes on a whole new character than it used to take on. You know, before you got fame by being some famous actor, actress, or sports figure. But now you got all these people on social media who gain fame because they do this or do that, and usually it's not stuff that's morally correct. And so they're trying to gain fame some other way. And so we must be careful because what does Solomon teach us here? The, 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 the quest for fame is vain. It's empty. It's not fulfilling. That takes us to chapter 5 and point number 3 today, a look at the spiritual side of life. Solomon takes another one of these little exits from his looking at life under the sun, and, and he, he begins to talk about a spiritual issue that is very, very crucial. And this is one of those times, folks, Solomon just gets it right. He really gets it right when it comes to this. Notice what he says. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Now, there's a lot right in that first verse of chapter 5. He, and he's basically saying, he, he, having found emptiness, futility in, in the secular side of life, I'm going to look at the spiritual side for a minute. So I'm going to the house of God. And what does he say? Keep thy foot when, they go, when thou goest to the house of God. In other words, we are to watch our step. Don't enter God's house carelessly. That's good advice, folks. When we come to church, it's not some big party. It's not. Now, we can have great fellowship, and I love, you know, I, I have talked to numerous people this morning. There's been a lot of fellowship this morning. There was fellowship in Sunday school classes, fellowship in the teen class, you know, fellowship. We, I've talked to a lot of you before service started. There's great fellowship that goes on, but church is just not a big party, folks. That's not what it is. And so when we step into the house of God, we need to be cautious that we come in with the right reverence and respect that we should come into it with. Church is not a game. God is not a game. It's a life of commitment that we are called to live. We talked about in the men's, in the men's group yesterday that you know, we're called to be soldiers of Christ. We have a call to arms. We're, we are supposed to, be, we're supposed to be men and women of God, soldiers fighting evil. That's what we're called to do in this life. It's not a joke. And so we must be careful when we enter the house of God. Don't enter it carelessly. Good advice from Solomon. We should honor God and be prudent when we enter his house. We know in Hebrews, we, we, we had our study in Hebrews, but if you turn over to Hebrews just for a second here, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, we remember this verse. It said, not forsaking the of our, assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. He says, listen, you need to get together in church. 
You need to assemble together as believers. But right after he tells us that, what does the writer of Hebrews do? He gives us a huge warning. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So as soon as he tells us, listen, we need to assemble ourselves together in the house of the Lord, the first thing he does is give us a warning about not coming in the wrong spirit, not coming in a way that's going to do harm to the body of Christ. The admonition immediately follows um, this verse about assembling together and visiting the house of God. We are warned not to trodden underfoot the Son of God, not to count the covenant of God as unholy or to spite the Holy Spirit. Right after he says assemble together, we get the warning of God. And notice what he says here as he enters in this verse. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God and be more ready to hear. Isn't that interesting? You know, I've heard many times people say, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. And there's a reason for it. We need to hear more than we speak. And Solomon tells us, when you go into the house of God, be ready to hear. Now, I don't know about you folks, but what that, what that says to me is, I need to have my heart prepared to hear the word of God. I need to be in a mindset that I'm ready to hear the word of God. You know, why, why, do we, why do we sing hymns in our service? Is it just filler? So you guys, when you come, you're here for a whole hour, so we got to fill something in or else i got to preach 50 minutes. No, that is not why we sing hymns. We sing hymns to prepare our heart for the word of God. We ended our song service today as, As the deer panteth for the water. So my soul longs after thee. What is that doing? That's preparing our heart to say, God, I want something from you today in the service. And I'm here in a serious state of mind waiting for what you have for me today. That's what Solomon's telling us here. He, he says, listen, he says, be ready to hear, be, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. And it's interesting, the word here, here in Hebrews, I mean here in Ecclesiastes, excuse me, in the Hebrew, is a word that carries a double meaning. The meaning is to not just hear, but to hear and obey. Isn't that interesting? When Solomon says, listen, you need to be going into the house of the Lord ready to hear, he is saying, you need to be, we're going into the house of the Lord, ready to hear and obey what you hear. Now, folks, this goes back to another issue. This is why it's so important that as the pastor, the pastor's preaching the Bible. Because what are you going to obey if he's not preaching the Bible? You're going to obey his opinion. Well, listen, folks, my opinion doesn't mean a thing. This book is what's important. 
What's in this book is what you need to obey. You don't obey Ken Biggs. Trust me, you don't want to obey Ken Biggs. You don't obey Ken Biggs. You obey what's in this book. That's what you should be hearing when somebody gets in the pulpit to preach. And so, so Solomon says, he says, listen, when you get ready to go into the house of the Lord, he said, you need to go in in a sober mindset, being ready, ready to hear and obey God's word. You know, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, when, when Samuel was, was dealing with King Saul, he said to obey is what? Better than sacrifice. Now think about that in the time frame that that was said. Sacrifice was what their services were pretty much all about. That everything involved sacrifice. The tabernacle, you know, was a house of blood. Just one sacrifice after another sacrifice after another sacrifice. And Solomon says to King Saul, to obey is better than you coming in here and offering a bunch of sacrifices that mean nothing. That's what he was saying. So see, folks, we have to be really careful because we can come into church and give it a lot of lip service and not obey a thing. And that's the sacrifice of fools. That's the sacrifice of fools. Solomon tells us here, listen, when you go into the house of God, you need to be ready to hear. Why? Because, folks, we need to hear this book. We need to take it to heart. We need to obey it. Do what it says. Follow it. Not following man. Follow the word. That's what we need to be following. The sacrifice of the fool is good for nothing. Solomon goes on. He says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. He says, Don't be rash with thy mouth. In other words, and he's talking really here about, about making promises to God, coming into, coming into the house of God, coming into church, and promising God, being rash to promise God something, and then never follow through with it. In other words, you just come in and you, and you speak off the cuff. You don't think before you speak. And I think about how often do we do that, folks? How often do we not think before we speak? Ever say something, and as soon as you say it, you think, boy, I wish I had thought that through before I uttered those words. I know my hand is up, <laughs> right? You say it and as soon as it, the words are no sooner off your lips and you're thinking, I shouldn't have said that. Why? What happens? I'll tell you what happens, folks, is, is we, we get a mindset sometimes. Listen, James, James tells us, wherefore my, in James 1.19, he says, wherefore my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why is it that we get that exactly backwards so often. We're swift to speak, slow to hear, and swift to anger. We get it completely backwards. He tells us, listen, be slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to hear. Why is it? Well, I'll tell you why it is. It's an issue of pride in our lives. Ever made this statement? I'm just gonna give that person a piece of my mind. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because I don't want to know how many have said that. I know I've thought that. I may not utter the words, but I know I've thought that. I'm just going to give that person a piece of my mind. Or how about this? I'm going to tell them what I think. I don't care if they want to hear it or not. Right? We, I mean, I don't want you to raise your hands, folks, but I'll raise my hand in honesty. Yeah, I've said that. I've thought that before, right? I'm going to tell them what I think, whether they want to hear it or not. What are we being? We're being 
Swift to speak. Swift to speak. And it's an issue of pride. They need to hear from me. They need to know what I think. And, 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 and folks, we have to really work on it. The Bible, several places, talks to us about speech and the right kind of speech. Remember in Job, now we took our study through the book of Job, and I don't know if you remember, but in Job chapter 29 and verse 1, all the way through chapter 31 and verse 40, that's kind of Job's final speech that he makes, and it's a lengthy one. And, 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 and quite frankly, Job was good in a lot of ways, but that speech was a little self-righteous at times. And, uh, and he gets done with that speech. And when God decides to speak, then you have his friends speaking and stuff. And, and God basically just totally ignores the friends speaking until he deals with that at the end. But in chapter 38 and verse 2, God speaks out after Job has just given this lengthy diatribe of how everything's wrong right now, and God speaks. And in chapter 38, in verse, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And then it goes on from there. And we find Job very quickly realizing, I should have not said what I said. <laughs> He very quickly recognizes the fact that he spoke when his mouth should have been shut. He actually says that in one passage, that basically I spoke when I should have just kept my mouth shut. Why is that? Because we, in our pride, are going to make it right. We're going to fix it. Somebody needs to listen to me. And God's telling us, be slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to anger. Solomon's dealing when we come into the house of God. He says, listen, don't, do not, be not with rash words in thy mouth. And, and, and don't be hasty to utter thing, anything before God, for God is in heaven and now upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. He basically is saying, listen, when we come to the house of God, let, let, let's treat it like we should. Jesus Christ even addresses the issue in Matthew uh, chapter 12, Jesus Christ addresses the issue of idle speech. Notice Matthew chapter 12, and starting verse 36, he says this. He says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Folks, when I think about the words that I have spoken in my life, the idle words, and I hear that verse, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. That's a scary thought. That's a scary, that's sobering. That is sobering. When you think about what words have come out of my mouth in my lifetime, and God's going to look at those words and deal with them. That's sobering. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ said is going to happen. Notice what he says. He says, For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Now here we get two, two little additional thoughts on letting our words be few. And, and, and I, uh, commentator Trapp sums this up, uh, and, and he says, it is, it is not the labor of the lips, but the travail of the heart that prevails with God. 
He says, you know, dealing with God is not us just constantly speaking, 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 speaking. It's what's in our heart. But then uh, Phillips in his commentary for this section, I love how he sums that verse up. For, the, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. He says, one man dabbles in all his business dealings and his dreams trouble him at night. In other words, he lets all the business of his day, what he does for work, troubles him at night, keeps him up at night. He can't sleep at night because of, of the work he does. The other one babbles at the mouth, and he's a fool. <laughs> Basically, Solomon it just is summing those two things up, just kind of an additional verbiage onto this piece of the verse, and, and, and so he sums it up that way. And then finally, our last thought for today, and we're done. Roman numeral 4, keep your vows before God. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools pay, uh, in fools, pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. In other words, what is he saying? He's talking about a vow to God, a promise to God. He says, when you make a promise to God, you better keep it. That's what he's saying. Even if it hurts, you better keep it because it's better to have never vowed to God in the first place than to make a vow to God and break it. That's what he says. And then he says this. He says, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy thy work of thy hands. He says, listen, don't make a vow to God, and then when you break it, just say, oh, it was an error on my part. That's a nice way to cover it, isn't it, folks? Oh, I, I promised that to God, but it was, it was just an error in my thinking. He's saying, don't do that. And then he says this, and, and boy, what a, what, a, what a powerful thought at the end of this piece of the passage. He says, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities, back to the idea of vanity, and then he says this, four words, folks, that really sum up this whole section so far in chapter 5. But fear thou God. That's what he started out with. He, when he says, keep thy, thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. In other words, deal with God as somebody you reverence, somebody you fear with a reverential fear. And then at the end here of verse 7, he just lays it right out in four words that are very powerful. He says, but fear thou God. See, folks, how are we supposed to approach an almighty God with reverential fear? That's how. That's how. Listen, folks, we, we can enjoy church, and, and we do. I think we have a great time here, and we have fun with each other, and we talk and joke and have a good time, but there's also a sober aspect to church. And that sober aspect is when the Word of God gets opened up and somebody shares it in a Sunday school class, in children's church, as a message from the pulpit, however it gets shared, it, it, that, that's a time to be serious, folks. That's a time to take the Word of God and say, what can I learn today that God is trying to teach me? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. As we come to the end of this, this passage, this message today, some... some it's amazing when Solomon gets outside of his down-to-this-earth thinking and actually thinks eternally for a few moments. It's amazing how wise he is. The verses we read today, I mean, if, if all the book of Ecclesiastes were, was written that way, it would be wonderful. It would be, it would be a, a lesson and an instruction manual for life. 
But unfortunately, Solomon keeps going back to the earthly way of thinking. And we have to be careful that we don't do the same thing. But listen, Solomon says, listen, we, we need to grow together in fellowship with each other, that threefold cord. God is part of it. But then we need to be, be sober, sober-minded when we come into the house of God, that we don't treat it disrespectfully, that we honor God when we come to worship him. That's what we should be doing in our lives each and every week when we come here. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. I'll ask Elizabeth to play. And maybe the Lord's dealt with your heart about some aspect of the message today. The altar's open. You can sit back down to your pew and pray, but we'll wait for just a moment today.